Welcome, listeners, to Snippet Sports Science Podcast. This is Jared Colton-Starr, today with Chris Cavillio. How are you doing today, Chris? Yeah, fine and dandy, thanks. How are you, mate? <laughs> fine and dandy as well. So this is, we've got an article today that we talk about all the time in our kind of everyday conversations, and so we've been keen to actually read it a bit more thoroughly and discuss it on the podcast for everyone. This article is called Type 1 Muscle Fiber Hypertrophy After Blood Flow Restricted Training in Powerlifters. So this is in line with our... So actually, I'm going to interject here. The reason why we actually talk about this, Jared, I don't know if you remember, but when it first came out, the plethora of Twitter messages that came out saying, BFR increases type 1 muscle fiber, you know, just went crazy and everyone almost went, Ugh. and I actually, I have an athlete and a coach that I consult with and they use BFR quite heavily due to this athlete's restrictions in his back, uh, elite athlete. And some people went up to him and actually said, uh, mate, why are you doing that for? Don't you know it increases tight one muscle fibers? And uh, I remember that response. Yeah. Yeah. Totally uneducated response where someone's complete misunderstanding and so yeah and that's why i said right i want to read this article because like everything you need to get in there and dissect it because you know some previous work has spoken about improvements in type 2 muscle fiber hypertrophy and this is obviously then freaking out all those power strength and speed athletes out there therefore i thought it was uh, good that jared and i actually took time to read it we've spoken a bit in a pre-discussion and and obviously for you today at their listeners something that you can uh, listen to and and hopefully make up your own mind right yeah and i think that misunderstanding is largely based around the concept that people think that if you grow type one fiber, you magically become an endurance athlete and you lose all your strength, which is absurd. You can be both fit, strong, powerful, and fast. They, they aren't exactly contradictory towards each other. And particularly with blood flow restriction training, this could be a unique stimulus where you can be getting both hypertrophy and work capacity or semi-endurance benefits. So anyway, back to, uh, back to your little introduction there. Sorry for interrupting the Jared, but oh, please do. This is an article from University of Adger in Norway in connection with the Norwegian Powerlifting Federation. So it looks like it's likely that these, as well as the Norwegian Olympic Federation, so it looks like these are probably going to be pretty practical, good applied researchers. Yeah, definitely. And when you look at the table of the actual athletes there, yeah, they're reasonably strong athletes that they got in this group. They're actually uh, squatting, deadlifting, very good loads that traditionally we wouldn't get to read about in academic journals. Yeah, they recruited 17 national level powerlifters aged about 25 years on average, 15 of the men, only two women. That's fairly typical trying to get your powerlifters recruited. But, um, you'll have a pretty skewed ratio there very often. Uh, the best I've really been able to do with my own research is about two to one, male to female. It was also said here that there's actually 19 participants, two pulled out, as you alluded to. One powerlifter was actually excluded from the 1RM and the maximal isokinetic torque tests. And another participant was excluded from the cross-sectional error measurements due to a technical error. So it's important also to realize here that the numbers, although 17, dwindled a little bit in bits and pieces throughout the whole study. Right. So most of the data points are based off of those 17 powerlifters, but some are just off of 16 or 15. One thing to note with the technical difficulty of those muscle variables is they actually did a muscle biopsy in this study. And that's particularly why it's important that this is a Norwegian study 
because Norway is one of the few countries where you can actually do good quality muscle biopsies with relative ease in research. In Australia, it's much more difficult for us to do any sort of muscle biopsy. And that's why we've had some of our researchers actually go over to Norway or it might have been Sweden to be able to get muscle biopsies because in the study they also wanted to look at the myofiber areas, the number of myonuclei, satellite cells, muscle size, and strength for the powerlifters. I guess a little bit of background also to the idea behind the paper. We've spoken at length about BFR and strength training, high load training. And what they actually want to go here is they're, they're starting to talk about the mechanisms involved in the muscle adaptations to BFR. In particular, shown increased protein synthesis accompanied by mTOR pathway activation and reduced proteolysis-related gene expression. So though the hypertrophy mechanisms are complex, it also includes non-coding microRNA and ribosomal biogenesis. And in respect to this study setup, they seem to think that no study has yet investigated the changes in miRNA abundance and ribosomal responses after BFR. In addition to an elevation in protein synthesis and decreased expression of proteolytic genes, activation and proliferation of satellite cells have also been implicated in a hypertrophic response. So for example, one study by Nielsen reported that three weeks of low-load, high-frequency BFR, so it's 23 sessions, twice a day almost, resulted in large increases in satellite cell and myonuclear numbers in untrained individuals. Interestingly, the satellite cell and myonuclear responses in this study appeared to plateau after one week of training. This therefore suggested that the responsiveness of BFR may diminish with training and time. So to circumvent this plateauing effect, it could be hypothesized that applying multiple short blocks of BFR would be effective. And this then rolls into the actual study design, where the aim of the present study was actually to investigate the effects of two one-week blocks of high-frequency, low-load BFR during six weeks of periodized strength training. So once again, six weeks of training and the BFR group we'll do two one-week blocks some time apart. And we'll go that in a little bit. So Jared, they're going to go into a lot more detail here in the study, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and that's the reason that they need those muscle biopsies is so that they can get that sort of more biochemical mechanistic information that for the most part in this podcast, we talk about practical application sort of aspects. But it's, personally, I find it incredibly interesting, those biochemical mechanisms underlying what's actually happening in the cell. Definitely. And this study is not only going to look at those traditional increases in muscle size and strength in a training block, but also they want to look at changes in the numbers of myonuclear and satellite cells. So here that's that detail as the mechanisms as to an increase in protein synthesis, which may be shown in more practical markers of strength and hypertrophy. Getting into the training protocol, in the first and third weeks, the BFR group performed four sets with the first and last set to voluntary failure and set two and three to target repetitions of 15 and 12. On average for that first set, they got about 30 reps. And on the last set, they got about eight reps. So that's four sets. First one is 30, 15, 12, and then eight. And that's pretty consistent with what the literature has done and in common practice. For the control group, they simply performed their normal squat sessions during the six-week period without the additional blood flow restriction training sessions in weeks one and three. So those normal squatting sessions were actually front squatting at about 60 to 85% one repetition maximum for one to six reps across six or seven sets. 
And also during this training intervention, they also did other variants of squats, such as normal, high, low bar, medium, and narrow grip. They also did bench press, which was trained five times per week. They deadlifted twice a week using different variations from normal to sumo to wide grip and bent over barbell rows, shoulder press and biceps and triceps were trained once a week to balance out that complete program for the powerlifters. Right. This is a fairly common, although relatively high frequency, in my opinion, powerlifting program. And then as well, adding that blood flow restriction on top of it seems like a fairly large amount of training, in my opinion, but it is it is fairly common for powerlifters to be doing that much and taking into account the variations both in the specific technique in the squat and bench variants as well as the variation in your load and volume it's reasonably achievable what i want everyone to remember here is, is that these people they're squatting five times a week is that right for six weeks Joe? i think it was i think it was 10 actually so it says here i'll just read this right off During the six and a half weeks, both groups performed six front squat sessions in addition to the 10 front squat sessions performed in week one and three. So that's actually 16 front squat sessions. Over the six and a half weeks. On top of squatting five times a week. Right, right. Okay. Uh, Yeah, I understand it now. So it's that, that six plus 10 is split across week one and three, right? So that's, so that's five normal front squat sessions in week one and in week three, and then an additional three front squat sessions in week one and week three. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot more sense. Otherwise, that would be way too much. Irrespective of when we traditionally train athletes, we might have in the gym two, three times a week. And I don't know about you, Jared, but I definitely wouldn't be programming squatting five times a week because that's non-productive to what I think would be good strength development, but also it's just inhibitive towards the actual sport itself. So that's just a little side point there. And I think we really need to remember that when we're listening to the results here. These guys are squatting five times a week, deadlifting twice a week. This is something we wouldn't normally prescribe an athlete. Well, with blood flow restriction training, I'd, I'd be all right with daily doubles, to be honest. But with proper heavy front squatting, there's no way I could live through this program. Not a chance. I wouldn't be able to recover. Now they're saying that they, they, on top of that, they squat yeah. five times a week. They deadlift twice. Right. A week. They bench press five. You know, a thrower, if they're lifting any good loads, wouldn't bench press more than twice a week. Yeah. And they rely heavily on their um, pushing ability. However, let's move on. Yeah, there was another interesting thing that I saw here where it says the load during the blood flow restriction was calculated by a formula used by the powerlifters to adjust for body mass. So that's relative load, one repetition max, times 40% of the week one amount, minus 60% of the body mass, or 45% of week three, minus 60% of body mass, which corresponded to between 24 and 31% of the one repetition maximum. That's a fairly normal amount to be doing blood flow restriction training. We often go at about 30%. So with a relative body mass corrected formula for between 24 to 31%. That makes quite a bit of sense to me because these are uh, relatively heavy guys as well for the most part. So it makes sense that you're still moving your body mass while you're doing those squats. So you do need to account for that in the overall system. Yeah, very true. 
And the blood flow restriction, what they did here is they used uh, what we call practical blood flow restriction. They used elastic knee bands, which were 7.6 centimeters wide, and they had a total width of around 13 to 14 centimeters once they wound it around their proximal part of their thigh. Right. So they wrapped those bands around multiple times until they got to a total width of 13 to 14 centimeters. And the next bit here was, was I thought was quite clever. They actually put an underlying inflated pressure cuff to actually measure how much pressure that they were applying during the stimulus. And this was approximately 120 mils of mercury. I remember reading in a previous paper, they talk about using an RP of seven out of 10. And there was another paper also spoke about the potential stretch of elastic wraps over time, something to be wary of. Therefore, I thought this was actually really quite clever. You put a small little cuff underneath just to cross-reference it. Interesting though, they didn't reference anything around thigh circumference, which would have probably given them a better pressure relative to the size of the athlete. Right. They're using that flat pressure of 128 millimeters mercury and practical cuffs. But I thought it was an excellent little nudge towards good scientific validity, having that measurement of the 120 millimeters mercury. And then as well, while they were training, they would occasionally check that to make sure that they were maintaining around 120 millimeters mercury. I would have liked to have seen a little bit of data on how well they were able to effectively maintain a range around 120, but it, at least they went to the boulder of trying to have a bit more scientific validity around that practical method that we are usually quite critical of. And look, a lot of papers now are tending to, to move towards limb circumference. So once again, interesting, they used arbitrary pressure, but anyway, moving on to the testing they actually performed in regards to strength. They got them to perform an isokinetic knee extension where they performed two by three maximal repetitions at 60 degrees per second, looking at peak torque and just remembering that 60 degrees per second, that's quite tough. As the number yes. gets higher, your leg moves a lot quicker. Right. Yeah. The lower the number, the slower you're moving, which means that it more mimics a heavier, slower movement. Yeah. And they also then measured a one RM squat as well. And that was 1RM front squat. That's right. And they lowered until the top surface of the thighs at the hip joint was lower than the top of the knee. Now, this was just a funny bit with that squat test. I read here, it says, the subjects were allowed to use lifting belt and magnesium during the 1RM test and strong verbal motivation was given during the test. It's common to supplement magnesium. That's a very common supplement for lifters. I feel they mean ammonia. Yeah. Because they say magnesium, I think they mean smelling salts because that's very common in powerlifting practice that you'd have your brain grenade or whatever it is. So I think that's just a little typo there that by magnesium, I believe they mean ammonia. Once again, Jared, good pickup. With respect to other measurements, they obtain muscle thickness in the rectus femoris of the thigh, the vastus lateralis, the vastus medialis, and the vastus intermedius. And this was done by ultrasound. They then performed muscle biopsy sampling, and this was obtained from the vastus lateralis. Then they went on to much more technical analysis here. Do you perhaps want to take this area here? You're quite good in respect to all this. So I'm imagining that most of the listeners aren't going to be too interested in the lab analyses. So I think we can breeze through those pretty quickly. But they did some histochemical staining, some RNA extraction, and cDNA, RT-PCR as well as microRNA, cDNA, and RT-PCR. And what are they trying to find there, basically? 
they're basically trying to find the biochemical mechanisms underlying what's happening. So the microRNAs, messenger RNAs, and associated molecules all regulate the hypertrophy process. So because they're looking into primarily hypertrophy in the study, they want to be looking at where's that hypertrophy coming from? Is it coming from the satellite cells or some other mechanism? And the last point here was they actually used EMG amplitude with six of the subjects in the BFR group where they performed a separate sub-experiment to investigate the muscle activity with surface EMG on the vastus lateralis. Yep. Finally, just a quick note on the statistical analysis. With a minimum of eight participants in each group, because they split that total participant number into the two groups of the blood flow restriction and control group, so they had eight participants in each group, and therefore they had 80% power to detect the mean group difference between the two groups of 11% in muscle fiber area with an expected standard deviation of 7%. So they're only going to be able to determine if this is a statistically significant difference if there is at least 11% greater muscle fiber area growth in the blood flow restriction group than in the control group. It's a big study, isn't it, Jared? Yeah, it's a huge study. I was actually going through this and I was sort of thinking, you reckon this was uh, the first author's PhD? Potentially. We could have spent a couple of Because it's papers. huge. Yeah, it's absolutely massive. By the way, for the readers, this is a 46-page paper that we're discussing. <laughs> Trying to get through it quickly for you all out there. Stay with the snippet formula. I think it's time to get into the results, Jared. Yep. So going into the results, especially with so many different variables, I like to largely go off of the graphs. Actually, I find the graphs a lot more comprehensible than digging through all of the text. Just looking at the first figure that they have here is a schematic illustration of the study design. So we see the seven weeks that they have in total. So just to review the training program briefly, in that first week, they do a muscle biopsy sample as well as the strength measurements and the ultrasonography. And then from weeks one through week seven, they have all those traditional strength training sessions, having five traditional strength training sessions every week for six and a half weeks. And then for weeks one and weeks three, there's an additional five sessions. So they do 10 total sessions on week one and week three, where the conventional group performs a front squat at 60 to 85% one repetition maximum, whereas the blood flow restriction group performs the front squat with blood flow restriction at about 30% of that one repetition maximum. And we remember from that formula that they calculated that was actually 24 to 31% of the one repetition maximum. Now, moving into the results, the first thing I'd like to talk about is the muscle fiber area. So what we see there is the blood flow restriction group has a significant increase in their muscle fiber area, about a, I think about an 11, 12% increase in their muscle fiber area, percent change from baseline. And as well, that is a statistically significant difference between the blood flow restriction group and the control group for the type 1 fibers there was no significant increase in the control group for type 1 fibers and no significant increase for either group for the type 2 fibers. When I was actually going through these figures, Jared, with all kind of training you have, responders and non-responders, there's still some points there on the figures where there's some participants actually still got reasonable improvements in type 2 fibers, you know, 10%. Oh, of course, yeah. And I'm sure that varies based on the athlete. You know, these are national level power lifters, but there will be some variation in that, that some of them will be 
less developed and have more room to improve in their hypertrophy measures. And, you know, going on the work of Christian Cook and colleagues, they're starting to move more away from group means and actually starting to try and look at responders and non-responders in their work. And perhaps just the thoughts has come to my mind that that would be really interesting in terms of teasing this information out to say, rather than making a blanket response and freaking people out saying type one fibers, hypertrophy, uh, there could actually be some benefit for your responders out there. Right. Absolutely. And that, that's why I, in my PhD and the uh, approach that I really enjoy is or that multiple aggression approach where you also include the individual athlete as one of your variables in the analysis. And so you can take into account the inter-individuality. Moving into the myonuclei per fiber, the results perfectly mimic the muscle fiber area results. So we see that statistically significant increase in the blood flow restriction group from baseline in the type 1 fibers, as well as a significant difference between the blood flow restriction group and the control group. So that makes sense. You know, you have more myonuclei, those myonuclei are able to produce proteins for that local area and then thereby increase the muscle fiber area. Looking at the muscle fiber area per myonuclei and the satellite cells per fiber, we see no significant differences across there. So it looks like that increase in the muscle fiber area for the blood flow restriction type 1 fibers may almost solely be due to that increase in total number of myonuclei per fiber. Then looking at the capillary per fiber and the capillary per muscle fiber area, we see a statistically significant increase in the blood flow restriction group from baseline, as well as significant difference between the blood flow restriction group and the control group for that capillary per fiber, but not the capillary per muscle fiber area. Is that a good thing if we're increasing capillary per fiber? Well, absolutely. And I've always said that blood flow restriction training is probably one of the best ways to increase your vascularity. We talk about hypertrophy and leanness and all that sort of thing, but actually a lot all the visible appearance of being lean, just how vascular a person is as well. And so for bodybuilding in particular, you know, you're not on stage, you're not just trying to be bigger, be leaner, you also want to be more vascular. And so for bodybuilding in particular, or just, you know, aesthetics, anyone who wants to look more vascular, and I think in general health, it's probably more healthy to be more vascular, have better pillarization then blood flow restriction training might be a unique stimulus to be able to create that. Now looking at specific muscle cross-sectional area, we see similar results to before where the blood flow restriction group has statistically significantly increased that muscle cross-sectional area from baseline for both the rectus femoris and the vastus lateralis, as well as significant difference between the blood flow restriction group. With respect to the cross-sectional area of the thigh muscles, the vastus lateralis, increased more in the BFR group compared to the control group. And this was significant of P equals 0.03. With respect to the rec fem, it increased in the BFR group compared to baseline. Now in the text, it said, but only a tendency was observed when comparing changes to the control group. Now, there's a few points in this paper where they put the value or they actually say a tendency and they said P equals 0.03. Now, I know when I was doing my thesis, I sometimes wrote that and I got slammed by my supervisor saying it's either significant or it's not significant and actually be upfront and straight with it. The BFR group increased muscle thickness of rec fem versus control, vastus lateralis versus control, and vastus medialis versus control. 
more than the control group changes. And then it looks like on its own from baseline, the blood flow restriction group improved muscle thickness for the rectum, vastus lateralis, and vastus intermedialis. Some slight differences in the vastus intermedialis and the vastus medialis. And then they also then put a correlation of increases in the cross-sectional area of the vastus lateralis with increases in the type 1 fibers in the BFR group. Uh, R was 0.81 with a significance of 0.02. That's pretty tightly correlated. Makes sense. Muscle thickness. This is perhaps more of a discussion point of view. When you look at the muscle fiber type of each muscle, I actually thought about vastus lateralis versus rectum and so forth. And I'm assuming it's obviously an easier point to take your sample from. But we're having this discussion and isn't it the vastus lateralis is more of a mixed fiber type whereas the rec fem I think is more inclined to type two. So if you're going to get a shift, potentially the vastus lateralis is going to show maybe more of an inclination towards type one fiber changes. Right. That would make sense. And also with just how hypoxia affects the different muscle fibers, because uh, it can be more fatiguing for type one than type two in certain circumstances, then in the exercise, you could be fatiguing that muscle more. So I'm not sure if that's a chicken or the egg scenario. I think what I wanted to highlight here is, is that it's, once again, people were freaking out about type one fiber hypertrophy. However, where you took it from, potentially it was more inclined because of the muscle fiber chosen. But as you just alluded to, Jared, the type of training done as well. Right, well, I mean, this next bit of the results just completely blows out the false premise that type one muscle hypertrophy could be bad for strength and power athletes because now looking at the maximal strength, we see that the blood flow restriction group significantly improved their isokinetic peak torque, whereas the control group did not. Although admittedly, the control group significantly improved their front squat one repetition maximum significantly whereas the blood flow restriction group did not improve their one repetition maximum front squat significantly. And when you look at the numbers, the control group improved their 1RM by 5.9 kilos at significance of 0.02, whereas the BFR was 4.1. Not a lot of difference in terms of absolute numbers. And also they're squatting a lot, these guys. So I would assume they're pretty fatigued at the end of it. So is their measure of the 1RM squat at that point of time a true reflection if they're under a high level of fatigue? Right, and also probably moving a little too much into this discussion already, but this was a front squat for powerlifters. You know, I don't know any powerlifter that actually does pretty much any front squatting, unless they also do strongman, in which case, yeah, they're definitely going to be doing some front squatting or at least some safety squat bar. But that could just be from the additional 10 sessions of learning with a heavy load that the control group got from weeks one and three, because it's quite a significant different movement in your front squat. Yeah, I agree. With, with a heavy load, you're, you're much more pushed over onto the front. You're going to be a lot more hip dominant. All right. And then looking at our messenger RNA fold change per 4HK, we see that there are some significant improvements in the blood flow restriction group for PAC7, myogenin, cyclin D1, cyclin D2, VEGF, and NIP7, whereas there are only significant improvements for the control group in PAC-7 and NCAM. So we will get into more detail on these in the discussion, but just a quick overview of them here and the results. 
for the microRNA fold change per 3HK, we see significant increases in the blood flow restriction group for microRNA 16486 and 206, whereas there are no significant increases for the control group. In regards to the ribosomal RNA fold change per 4HK, we see that there are significant increases for 5.8S and 18S plus ITS for the blood flow restriction group, and only a significant increase in 18S plus ITS for the control group. Now, I was also just looking at the descriptive characteristics of the participants here quickly, and all there weren't any significant differences in the two groups, I did just have a quick note on the weight of the two groups. So the blood flow restriction group had an average weight of 89 kilos, whereas the conventional group had an average weight of 102 kilos. So that's a p-value of 0.11. But to me, you know, if you have an 89-kilo guy fighting a 102-kilo guy, that's not a fair fight. The 102-kilo guy is almost certain to win. That's a whole weight class to me. Big difference. Yeah, so the conventional group was a bit bigger than the BFR group. And so that could be something to consider, although it's not a significant difference. It is something to consider for additional hypertrophy in the blood flow restriction group. And additionally, to go along with this, I just saw some other kind of lower p-values, not statistically significant, but for the vastus lateralis thickness, the BFR group had an average thickness of 3, whereas the conventional group had an average thickness of 3.4 for a p-value of 0.09. And the BFR group had an average myonuclei per muscle fiber type 2 of 7.6, whereas the conventional group had an average of 8.1 for a p-value of 0.17. So I think if you take them separately, none of those are statistically significant. But taken together, that tells a little bit of a story to me that the conventional group was probably a bit bigger and a bit more hypertrophy trained than the BFR group. And therefore, a bit more at an advantage. Yes. Now, finally, they've just got that little sub-study results from the electromyography where we're looking at the RMS in the concentric phase across the different weeks of training. They just said here that the peak signal was higher during three repetitions of front squats at 80% of 1RM compared to the first and last three repetitions during the BFR of set one, set two, set three, and set four. Essentially, some more EMG activity using high-load squatting. And there's actually been a lot of evidence around BFI and muscle activation. But one thing that we've always said is that load is king. If you can lift someone heavy, you got to do it. All right. This is quite an in-depth study, isn't it, Chris? Yeah, it's a big one. Yeah. So I think that'll we'll break this into two parts. We'll have a part one, part two. In part two, we'll discuss all these results. Sounds great, Jared. So uh, thanks for listening to this podcast, everyone. And thanks to our sponsors. Tune in next week, and we're going to get straight into the discussion about this paper. And please visit EliteForm.com.